Hi, this is Steve Campbell, and this show was also recorded on video. You can find the video at patreon.com slash taylorstevens, and you can watch along with what Taylor's doing. This is a, a fairly in-depth editing show, so it, it would be great if you could watch the video as well. Taylor's made the post public, so it's available to everyone. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of the Vanessa Michael <laughs> of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and I'm here with my good friend Steve Campbell, who is actually taking over for me because I can't read my intro. I'm staring at a blank screen, and you're staring at it as well. If you're if you're on um, watching this on video, so Taylor, Taylor, how did I do? <laughs> Way better than I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> so <laughs> we are not recording video too, or I'd really be screwed. Yes, I, I maybe we could see you turn red. That would be kind of fun. It would be more. It's it's red. You'd see me distracted. You'd see papers in my hands. I'd just be like all kinds of mess. But anyway. <laughs> so what are we doing today? Why do we have video? What's going on? Well, we are going to do editing, which um, for our listeners. You can't see this, but you may be able to come back and watch it later. And we all know that when I go into a line edit or a story edit, as much as we try to make it clear on air, sometimes you just got to be able to see it. So we always, we wanted to record it so that those who had access to video later could come back if they wanted to and see with their eyes, not just their ears, what it was we were talking about. Okay. And what we're doing, the material we're working with today came from a friend of the show and friend to both of us, uh, author C.A. Newsom, Carol Newsom. This is from her first book. She is, I think, at book six or seven now. I should know that, but I'm, I, I'm not sure off the top of my head. And she wants to relaunch some of her earlier books, so she's rewriting them to try and catch up her craft to where she is now. And so... That's a, that's a byproduct of, of the more you write, the better you get. And it's really hard when you go back and you read your earlier stuff and you're like, oh my God, I could do so much better than this. So now that she's at a place where she can, she wants to go back and do it. What um, Carol sent me was the, the main thing that she wanted help with. Um, I don't even know if help is the right word. She wanted my opinion just to see, like, what could I do to with this scene? I'm just not sure if it's conveying a certain emotional state. And that was in Chapter 1. And so she included the prologue as well, for reference, and a little bit of history. Not a lot. And I haven't read the book. So I was kind of coming at it blind, which actually I think in some ways is good because um, it allows, when you already are familiar with the material, you can, um, it just, it's a different perspective when you're coming at it blind. So uh, I started off thinking, okay, I'm just going to work with the, the first chapter. But in the end, I realized, well, I had a lot to say on the prologue and whether Carol, um, valued it or not, not that she, that's the wrong word, it's not that she didn't value it, but whether she wanted to go with the direction that I was suggesting or not, um, I still felt that the material would be worthwhile for our listeners as well. So, that, so that's what I'm going to start with today is the prologue. And, and for that, I have to do a little bit of um, a, a disclaimer, I guess you could say. And there's spoilers here. So for those who might 
future be reading this book. I apologize in advance. I did get permission. I know that it's okay. There's no way to do this without spoilers. Because the prologue opens with a killer's, killer's perspective. or I mean, you assume so from reading it. At least I did. And when when Carol originally wrote this piece in in the, um, the already published book, it... Um, it was clear from whose perspective it was, not the actual person, but that it was a woman. And she got um, a lot of feedback from her beta readers and I think also people who actually read the story itself saying that um, it would have been more suspenseful or created more mystery as to who this person was if the gender of the character hadn't been revealed. So Carol went and rewrote it in the first person, which is I, me, instead of she, her, and took out all of the, um, I guess, the identifying aspects of it. And I didn't know that history when I started it on this prologue. But when I started the prologue, I guess I intuited it, I picked it up, it, the, the clues were there to me, and I knew this was a woman's voice. So when I went to work on it, I went to work with, on it with that perspective, which basically put her back into her original position of, uh, so we'll discuss that a little bit later as we get towards the end. And can I just jump and, in here and say one thing? When yes. I, I read the prologue just as a, as a reader, just like reading it quickly, like I'm starting to read a book, and I read it, and I did not pick up a gender from it. Crazy, isn't it? Yes. Because like I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I look at it from the writer's perspective or something. But um, yeah, so I, she did a really good job on it. So I'm, I'm gonna. What? It's a little confusing when we try and do these things where I go through edits and stuff like that. So what I thought would be easiest, um, since it can be kind of confusing switching back and forth, is if we read the prologue as it is, as Carol sent it to me first. And then I'll provide my thoughts on it. And then we can read the notes. We can show the notes that I sent back to her that illuminate some of my more specific concerns. And then go over what I wrote as an example of how to solve those concerns. And I can discuss those as we go because there's no comments or anything in those. Okay, sounds good. Do you want me to read the prologue? Go for it. All right. And before I do... Uh, was that our chit-chat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a long show, so let's let's roll with it. All right, and I, I just want to throw one thing out here. You know, we've talked about the hurricane a little bit, and I, I we finally got our hurricane shutters fixed this week. Oh, yay. And our sliders are working again, but all of the down trees and stuff in the neighborhood are still kind of laying around it's really hard to go running around the circle that i normally go at you, just like you take your life in your hands running around the trees around corners and hope that cars aren't coming to hit you so or snakes jump out and bite you yeah it's just in, in past hurricanes these things because there haven't been there hasn't been as much they get picked up much more quickly like within a week um it's been weeks and it's i don't know, still seems like most of it is still here in large parts of the city so that's it. That's the hurricane update. Now we'll get to Carol's prologue. I will try and read this as professionally as I possibly can. All right. Well, I've got it here too, so. Prologue. Ten years ago. He has to go. Can I do it? 
It wasn't a problem while he was still working, all those long hours at the office and out of town for weeks at a time. Now the shark who spent his career terrorizing thousands of tiny minnows in his personal ocean has nothing better to do than splash around in my puddle. It has to stop. Potassium chloride is practically undetectable. They say it looks like a heart attack. He's already had two. No one would notice the injection site if it was mixed in with his insulin shots. I could sneak the potassium into his insulin and arrange it so he injects it himself while I'm away. But the syringe in the bottle would have a chemical residue. And if potassium changes the color of insulin, he'll notice. What's the best way to avoid suspicion? If I'm going when it ha- if I'm gone when it happens, I can arrange an alibi. That would mean an unattended death and maybe an autopsy. If I'm present and have to face EMTs, can I pull off acting dazed and grieving? Can I time it right, the call to 911? The Widmere case blew up because he delayed the 911 call too long. His wife's skin was dry when the EMTs arrived and the bathroom was too clean. The floor was dry. No pools of water from a distraught husband dragging her out of the tub. And he drained the tub. Who would bother to drain the tub? I bet he mopped it up because his wife thrashed around in the tub while he was holding her under. Years of controversy, three trials, and who knows how many thousands of dollars in expert witness testimony. Now Widmere rots in prison. Such small mistakes. Who could remember everything at a time like that? Mr. Big Shark has decided this is his kingdom and everyone in it has to do, has to be more wretched than he is. I am everyone, so that means me. It won't stop until he's dead. Can I pull it off? Can I do it? So here were my thoughts when I first read over that, is that this is a really strong concept because we're in, this, we're in the head of a murderer and we understand sort of what the reason is. I mean, we don't really know the reason, reason, but we can sense the reason for this person wanting to kill someone. And this prologue, it could totally stand it as, as it is. But, and at the same time, when you're writing a book, you want your opening paragraphs, your opening material to be the most compelling material that you have. And right now, the way it's currently structured, there are a few issues that make me um, make it difficult for my reading mind, and I, I know that I'm not the only person, to just let go and fall. So here are the, the issues that I highlighted that I felt could make this stronger. The first is that the prologue opens with a disembo- disembodied voice. We have no sense of who, what, where, when, and we obviously don't want to reveal the who in the sense of the actual character because that's going to remove the mystery. But we need some sense of place, some touchstone or anchoring point so that we're not free-floating in space completely disconnected. So imagine, if you can, that the reading mind begins in a completely dark, silent, empty space. Like space without the stars, just empty and dark. And the only sound the reading mind can hear and the only pictures it can see are built from the exact words on the page. So the dark and silent reading mind, it can't see the pictures inside the head, the author's head. It has no idea what the author is seeing. And we're free-floating in space, and a voice from nowhere says, he has to go. So the reading mind, it wants to look. It wants to see who said this. It wants to know 
who she is and what she looks like. See, I'm already at this point when I'm, I'm reading, I'm kind of working off my notes here. I'm already at this point, I've already go, this is a woman. So I'm already talking in the, in the she, the, the feminine. I said, so where should the reading mind turn? What does it see? There's nothing. It's just a voice talking to us. And so we're there just hovering, waiting in the dark, waiting for some pictures that we can step into it and start on solid ground. And then as the text begins, you know, it continues. We begin to deduce that it's a woman. Well, obviously not everyone. It was just me. And, you know, we can deduce that maybe she's married or living with a partner. Maybe this person, um, I don't know. Carol already told me, ah, you didn't get it all right. So I know that maybe it's not. Maybe it's a daughter, right? But um, we can deduce that this person that she's upset, Mr. Big Shark here, is um, has been retired or he's been fired. Um, but I would say retired um, due to the heart attacks and the diabetes. And so by the time we get to the end, we start to form sort of a visual picture. But it's not really enough to make a real strong mental movie. And without that mental movie, there's no immersion. And without the immersion, the immersion, there's no gripping sense of needing to turn the page. So we're just kind of there. We get it. All right. We're in the head of the, a murderer. Somebody's going to kill someone. And our, cura- our, our interest at this point is more like, can they pull it off? Who, you know, and you kind of want some more details, but you're not like in it immediately. But my, my second issue is that there's a lot of vagueness, a lot of um, vague words. And Steve, you're familiar with me getting on you about that. Vague, vague, vague. Give me something specific here. So we're, flee fo- fo- we're free floating in the dark. There's this voice talking to us. We're grasping for something to focus on. And we get a sense of it, a blurry picture of a woman who wants a man dead. But we don't have anything solid to explain why. There's that vagueness. Can she do it? It has to stop. And these words are preventing us from forming pictures in the dark, and so we're forced to stay free-floating without anything to pull us into the, and ground us to this mental movie. My second, my third um, issue with it, and this is just a personal thing. I know that Steve actually feels different from me on this, um, is that this voice is asking herself, itself, a lot of questions. And some people really like those questions. For me, I feel that it interrupts the immersive experience because whenever some a, crea- a question creates a pause, and whenever somebody has to pause, it interrupts that immersion. So when you have so many of them together in this small of a space, plus you've got the vagueness, plus you've got the disembodied voice, all together, my sense of it is there's things that can be done by fixing those three issues that would make this a much stronger, powerful opening piece. And so in, in the actual, I'm, we're going to go down the screen in just a bit, and I'll show some specific comments that I highlighted out that, that go into more depth on these types of things. But I also did a rough sketch of how some of these problems could be fixed. And so coming into this story with this rough sketch, I have no idea where the story goes. I have no idea who this character is. And I'm not talking about is as in like her name or um, what character she is in this story. I'm talking about who she is in the sense of who we are as the essence of us, you know, thoughts, dreams, fears, motivations, all that type of stuff. And so without any of that, I'm just making stuff up. And this is not my story. This is somebody else's story. This is Carol's story. And I know from experience, it's so grating. It's 
It's like nails on a chalkboard when somebody else superimposes their voice onto yours. So I'm obviously, you know, I told that to Carol, but I'm also telling this, saying this for our listeners and potential uh, people who see it with their eyes too, that this is not the way to do it. This is everything in here is just a placeholder. Now, wait a a minute. Can can we just jump in here with the standard Taylor Stevens show disclaimer? (laughs) No, I have to say. (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. These every change that I made, it's a placeholder. Just because I said, you know, she was doing this, whatever. It it could be anything. It's just an indication that something could go there to to create to to put texture details to create something that would turn a disembodied voice free floating in the dark into a living, breathing human being. Um, and so the thing is, though, is that I was really short on time when I was doing this. And it's faster for me to write in third person. That's my more natural way of doing it. So I wrote this, the, this piece. I did the changes in third person. But for multiple reasons, one, because Carol doesn't want this to be obvious that it's a male or female and two because she originally wrote it in first person i did not change it because third person is better i only changed third person because i was in a hurry and it made it easier for me so um if you if if you want first person and then you but you it's easier to write in third person then you just go back and switch all pronouns to i me whatever so now um with all those caveats and those different thoughts in mind and the, the big Taylor disclaimer, <laughs> we're going to go down and look at some of the, um, the, the actual comments that I highlighted in um, Carol's material. So 10 years ago, she goes prologue 10 years ago. I actually went and looked this up um, because, and this has to do with, um, if you look right here where it says the Widmere case blew up, I, I made this comment before I made this one up here. But um, so we'll get to the full text of that comment in a minute. But as of if I had read this document three weeks ago, I would have had no idea what she was talking about. The Widmere case. I, didn't, I, I don't know what that is. And there's a chance that a lot of readers wouldn't know what it is either. But I had just been staying at a friend's house and they'd had one of those like murder mystery type TV shows on there, real life murder mysteries. And it was this case. Oh, so I knew about, I, 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 I was like immediately knew what she was talking about, but three weeks ago, I wouldn't have. So, um, because I was familiar with this case, I went and Googled the timeline on it. And Sarah, Sarah Widmere, who's the, the woman who died in this case, she didn't die until August, 2008. So 10 years ago does not work for this story. Um, because in, in this, um, down here, she talks about, you know, uh, years of controversy, three trials. Well, the last trial didn't finish until 2011. So these are the types of fact checking things that can really throw off a story for people, not like me, for people who actually know what you're talking about. And so these are the types of fact, you know, it's a little tangent here, but I'm, I've learned the hard way. Do your research. Always look this stuff up to make sure that it works timeline-wise, because that's the type of thing that people are gonna gonna call you on. So, when I was talking about vagueness, we have here: Can I do it? It wasn't a problem. They say it 
it has to stop. They say it looks like a heart attack. No one would notice the ejection site if it was mixed. So at first I was like, well, what is it? What is it? Is this the same it that um, we had two question marks ago? What is it here? Like, what is it that's um, making this person so angry? Um, who's they? Potassium chloride is practically undetectable. How does she know this? These are little things that maybe someone would read right over them and not care. But by including those types of details, it creates a much stronger sense of person, who this person is. It creates a sense of reality. And I get a lot of reader feedback in my own writing about how vivid the stories are, how vivid the scenes are. And if you're looking for a reason as to why, it's because I don't do this with the it's and the they's and the the vagueness. Everything that I possibly can is actually given some description. It's texture. And combined all that additional texture, it's just a few words here or there, filling in and replacing those it's with something, something tangible, it creates a much stronger scene. So that's why I'm highlighting them out here. Now, as to the Widmere um, thing, I, because I knew who the Widmere, who um, Ryan Widmere was, I got this. But it can create confusion. So jumping straight right into the Widmere case, it's a sudden transition that automatically assumes the reader knows what this is. And then I explained that thing about, you know, if I'd read this three weeks ago. And so um, because I already know it, reading this is like, it's a sense of familiarity, like, oh, I'm in on it. I'm part of this mental process. It's like a shorthand for where this person's references are coming from. But without that, if I had no idea who this, what this Widmere case was, this would have been disjointed and it would have been coming at me in sort of a clinical way that feels closer to info dumping than to giving me insight into this character's state of mind. And I'd be distracted at first wondering, how is this connected with the point of view character? And it's not a difficult fix at all. It's actually really easy. But... It, it, it's tied into that concept of the reader has to always know where you are and why. It's an anchoring issue. All right. Can I throw something in here? Because when I read it, I did not have the, the prism that you had to, to look at this through with regard to having seen something on television about it uh, three weeks ago. And I thought this was going to be part of the story further on because I had no idea who – I didn't know anything about the Widmer case. And I, the grit just stopped me from reading at, at that point. It, or it became this became grit, and it sort of stopped me from reading. And then I was trying to figure this out: is uh, was whoever whoever's mind were in was he was he the person that killed the the Widmer woman or exactly what, what's going on? I was completely lost at that point. Exactly. So this is an anchoring issue where you've got to make sure that the reader always knows where you are and what they are in the story. Easy, easy to fix, but you have to be aware of it. So continuing on, like we've passed all those it's, right? Um, potassium chloride is practically undetectable. They, who's they? 
say it, it looks like a heart attack. He's already had two. No one would notice the injection site if it was mixed in with his insulin shots. I could sneak the potassium into his insulin and arrange it so he injects it himself while I'm away. But the syringe and the bottle would have a chemical residue. And I should have highlighted out there, how does she know this? And if potassium changes the color of insulin, he'll notice. And that's a, a contradiction there. She assume, we assume she knows that the syringe and bottle would have a chemical residue. I mean, that is a natural assumption, so maybe she doesn't have to know why or doesn't have to explain how she knows it. Um, but then she doesn't know if the potassium is going to change the color of the insulin. So it's kind of a, um, a little bit of a logic conflict there. What's the best way to avoid suspicion? We have to pause to think about that. That's an interruption. If I'm gone when it happens, are we talking about the death? Are we talking about the injection? Like there's it, it's vague. I can arrange an alibi. That would mean an unattended death. What would mean an unattended death? If because she's gone, then okay. And maybe an autopsy. If I'm present and have to face EMTs, can I pull off acting dazed and grieving? Can I time it right, the call to 911? So like I said at the beginning, this is not bad. This is really good. It totally works the way it is. But these are all things that can be clarified in text. So then we move into the Widmere case blew up because he delayed the 911 call too long. His wife's skin was dry when the EMTs arrived. The bathroom was too clean. The floor was dry. No pools of water from a distraught husband dragging her out of the tub. And he drained the tub. Who would bother to drain the tub? I bet he mopped it up. He mopped the tub up because his wife thrashed around in the tub while he was holding her under. Years of controversy, three trials, and who knows how many thousands of dollars in expert witness testimony. Now Widmere rots in prison. So for the part now Widmere rots in prison, I noted a little, just a little thing. That's like for clarity, you'd want to use first name and last name on something like this because you're talking about someone specific. We don't, all we have is this last name. And we know it's a he, but because it was a husband, but we don't really know anything more. So it creates more intimacy, more immediacy by saying, you know, now Ryan Widmere rots in prison. Such small mistakes. Who can remember everything at that time, at a time like that? Mr. Big Shark has decided that his king, it is, this is his kingdom and everyone in it has to be more wretched than he is. I am everyone, so that means me. It won't stop until he's dead. Can I pull it off? Can I do it? So the reason I keep highlighting it like that so loudly is because if you're listening to this, you can't see this. They're all highlighted on the screen. So when I went and did this rewrite, that doesn't mean that I automatically deleted every single it. I'm just pointing these out that they are um, not... They're not detailed. So if you can figure if you can figure out a way to turn an it into something specific or a that or a they into something specific, it helps to um, it it just helps to strengthen this. So here's my suggestion of how I would have written the scene if it was mine. And it's a rough sketch. Knowing me, I'd probably rewrite it ten dozen times because it is the opening. Scene. It has to be stronger than everything else 
in the book. So again, I just assumed it was a woman. I just needed something, so I started there. 10 years ago, her hands stopped washing just like that. And she stood at the sink, wrist deep in dirty dishwater. Funny how that was, funny how decisions were made, one second to the next, just like that. Her eyes, moved up from the faucet. her eyes moved from the faucet up to the window. Her back ached, her feet hurt. She was tired of standing, tired of sitting, tired of cooking and cleaning and taking the hits while catering to every whim and tyrant demand. Her fingers relaxed. The plate slid loose and scrubber floated free. Life had been tolerable while he'd been working all those long hours at the office and the weeks at a time out of town. But now the shark who'd spent his career terrorizing thousands of minnows in his personal ocean had come to claim her puddle. Mr. Big Shark had to go. One second to the next. And there it was. So what I did there with that was I gave us a person. We still don't know her name. We still don't know what she looks like. We don't know what kind of a house she's in. We don't know anything. But we gave the reading mind something to look at. Something to look at while they're listening to that voice talk. Because as you hear her, her talking, you have visual images to work with. And when your mind has those visual images to work with, now there's something for it to do while it's listening to the words and it doesn't feel like this empty space. When we say, when I put in here, her back ached, her feet hurt, she was tired, that's all just, um, I, I needed something and I was answering, sorry, I'm trying to make the cursor stop highlighting things. Um, I'm answering that question of, you know, what it is, what's it? These types of things are replacing the it's tiny, small little details that give us a sense of unhappiness, give us a sense of what is bothering her. Still not a lot of detail, but it's something for the mind to work with. And I, I had a conversation with Carol about this after I'd sent the material to her, and that's when she'd explained to me, well, you couldn't know this, and she gave me the the history of how she was trying to make it gender neutral so that it wasn't immediately obvious that this character was a woman. And I was like, okay, so if you wanted to keep all of these suggestions and keep the, um, the, the, the texture and the detail, just have her do something else. Have her wax a car, build a greenhouse, something that is a little more, less, less thought of as being woman's work, so to speak. And the more male-oriented you make it, the more you're going to throw the reader off in who they assume this character was. But then they go back in retrospect and read it. And it's kind of like that, that puzzle or that uh, conundrum that they ask people and they say, so um, there's a doctor. Wait, okay, no, it goes. So a man and his son get in a car accident and they're rushed to the emergency room. And when the doctor comes in and sees them, the doctor says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And when people hear that, it stumps them because their first assumption is, well, how can the boy, that boy already has a father. And it, it like takes forever before they realize, oh, wait, the doctor can be a woman. The doctor's his mother. 
So it's that same concept. If you really want to throw somebody off, just give them something male-oriented to do, and the reader's own bias will take it from there. <laughs> My mind was whirling trying to figure out the answer to that. I hope I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so back to this story. You know, one second to the next, and there it was. She picked up. So she picked up the plate again. The, the scrubber took on renewed life, and thoughts picked up. Oh, we got a double pick there. Pick, pick. I would. That's the type of stuff I. I um, will key in on in future drafts when I do my, my, my editing. But anyway, the, scub, the scrubber took on life, on renewed life, and thoughts picked up the pace in time to her wrists and elbows. Happy thoughts, freedom thoughts, chasing years of detail gleaned from detective shows and medical mysteries. Okay, you want to guess what I just did there? You figured out, how, or you're, you're showing the reader how she knew this stuff about the, the drugs and puncture holes and things like that. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. The possibilities turned little movies inside her head and made her the star. She could see herself. She could, couldn't she? Potassium chloride was practically undetectable, they said. The end result looked like a heart attack. He'd already had two. Maybe he could have a third. She could sneak the potassium into his insulin and arrange the timing so he injected himself while she was away. There's no it's in any of that. It's all specific. But the syringe and the bottle would have a chemical residue, and that could be a problem. If potassium changed the color of the insulin, he'd notice. Her hands worked faster. Her back didn't seem to hurt as much. He had to go. He absolutely had to go. She had to find a way to avoid suspicion. The spouse was always his first suspect, always. If she was gone when it happened, she could arrange an alibi. That would mean an unattended death and maybe an autopsy. The autopsy might be a problem. Practically undetectable didn't mean guaranteed undetectable. If she was present, she'd have to face EMTs. She'd have to pull off acting dazed and grieving. Could she do that? There were so many ways to mess up. She'd have to time the 911 call right. That was, that was what made the Widmere case blow up. So do you see how simple that fix was? That was what made the Widmere case blow up. He delayed too long before calling 911, and his wife's skin was dry when the EMTs arrived. So we know that hmm. she's not talking about herself. She's not possibly involved in that case. We're giving it just a few little word tweaks, and we know that she's talking about something she saw, something she heard. She's already familiar with um, these types of things from watching television. There's no interruption. There's no... A mental break, no grit there trying to figure out what is she talking about. So she'd have to time the 911 call right. That was what made the Widmere case blow up. He delayed too long before calling 911 and his wife's skin was dry when the EMTs arrived. He said she drowned, but the bathroom was clean and the floor was dry. No pools of water from a distraught husband dragging her out of the tub, and he drained the tub. Who would bother to drain the tub? He prob he'd probably mopped up the water because she'd thrashed around while he was holding her under. Years of controversy, three trials, and who knows how many thousands of dollars in expert testimony, and now Ryan Widmere was rotting in prison. Such small mistakes. Who could remember everything at a time like that? Her hands paused. Her heart, her heart was beating faster. She could feel it like a little rush. She drained the sink and watched the dirty water vanish the way Ryan Widmer's freedom had vanished. Mr. Big Shark had to go. He had to. Home was his kingdom now. He demanded everyone in his kingdom always be more wretched than he. 
She was everyone, so everyone meant her, and the tyranny wouldn't end until he was dead. She'd find a way. She'd be smart. She'd think of the little things. She wouldn't be Ryan Woodmere. <laughs> I want to applaud. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. So it is essentially everything that was already in there. But what we've done is instead of having it just information out there free-floating in space in the dark, we're giving the reader mind some sense of this is a real person. This is a person um, who's thinking and feeling these things and who's doing something while she's, she's not just. OK, so the doing something is what lends that sense of um, not free floating in space. It, the doing something adds this texture that and movement that gives you a sense of you're watching this person. You're, it, it's a funny thing, too, because the words are actually in, coming from inside the character's head, but the reading mind converts that into a picture where we see her from outside her body. We don't see her from inside her head. So all those little motions and the things that she's doing give the, take kind of illuminate that darkness and give us a, a, a movie picture on that screen of our, our brain and then we can hear those words and even feel the words that she's saying. And it's small little tweaks that do that. And so um, this text will be there. Um, we could probably supply the, um, uh, I don't know, screenshots or something so that you could read it and, and compare it sentence to sentence if you want to. And again, these are placeholders. This is not me saying this is how it should be done. Because if I was showing this person waxing a car, it would be completely different movements. But the point is, there needs to be a movement. There needs to be emotional beats and an interjection and, and not just this, this run-on thought, sequence of thought. It can work. It, it does work. That opening, that opening prologue works. But this is a way to take what was there and make it stronger so that the reading brain is pulled in and goes, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm with this. I'm with this. I'm with this. This is pulling me in. Oh crap. It's over already. Turn the page. <laughs> Let me ask you one quick question and we're way over on time already, but you mentioned early on uh, the idea of questions and uh, the, the person thinking to themselves, asking themselves questions. You mentioned that you knew that was something that you and I felt differently about. I, it's not that I like doing it. It it just it is a convenience to do that, and I can sort of see what you've done instead of asking questions. Um, but can you give a specific example of doing away with a question and and dealing, creating that the the sense of what the question was in a different way? Um, okay, I'm going to have to jump up and find it. So bear with us, guys, because it means. Um... Okay, here's one here. What's the best way to avoid suspicion? All right, mm -hmm. let's go back down and see how we answered that. Um, it is here where she had to find a way to avoid suspicion. And then I added, this wasn't part of the original text, but I added it because it's kind of standard and it's known and it's something that you see happen over and over if you 
watch those shows, which I don't, but <laughs> is the spouse is always the first suspect, always. So those two lines together answer the question, what was the best way to avoid suspicion? And the reason it answers it is because she doesn't know the answer in the first place. She never answers the question for herself, this character up there in the first version. So it doesn't have to be exactly the same. The answer is she doesn't know, and she's trying to work through the answer. And that's what all of this is doing down here afterwards, if she was gone when it happened, which was what the original text was doing, too, was trying to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So instead of asking it as a question, I made it as a statement. She had to find a way to avoid suspicion. And by doing it that way, we're eliminating some grit. And, and by asking the questions the way I do with my characters in their minds all the time, um, that's adding grit. Yes. And the grit is not a right. That's not like, oh, you wrote it poorly type grit. It's just that every time the reading brain has to pause, it pulls them a little bit out of the story. You want them, you don't want anything to break that reading trance. And questions do break that reading trance unless they come as a sort of um, a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So there's one up here or down somewhere in here. There's something where the the question is still there, but it's part of uh, part of the stream of consciousness. So she'd have to pull off acting dazed and grieving. Could she do that? That type of question isn't as um, isn't as interruptive because we're not actually asking for an answer. It's more like a pondering, a reflection, and so that is easier to work with. Okay, and we are out of time for this episode. Um, any call to action, Taylor? My call to action would be come back and listen to next week's episode when we're going to, to go a little bit further with Carol's material. We're going we're to go to the next phase, yes. I'm so on the hot seat with this, you guys. I feel so um, – I'm putting myself it, – it, it feels very vulnerable to come out here and say, this is what I would do and hope everybody agrees with me. Well, I mean, the important thing is that you throw in so many disclaimers. And, you know, if, if we ever had an official Taylor Stevens uh, – show disclaimer we'd never get that would take the place of the uh, chit chat we would just have the dis <laughs> disclaimer for five minutes at the beginning of every show <laughs> all right so we will be back again next week with more of this material from ca newsom thanks for being with us guys hope you come back for the next session